episode 40 of G.I. Joburg, the big 4-0, and in it we're talking animated series, specifically animated miniseries, most specifically The Revenge of Cobra, episode 2. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I'm Steve, and as always I'm joined by my beloved friends, Paul and Rob. Hey! So, what's up fellas? Not much. <laughs> Oh, that's uh, a pity. I was hoping you'd be as pumped about this as I am. No, I'm super pumped. I'm excited to talk about the episode. I just, I've just had quite a long day, so I'm a little bit tired. But I am super amped to talk episode 2 of The Revenge of Cobra, because it's got some great stuff in it. And I've brought a specific Joe with me that's going to be in this episode with me. Although silent, but he's going to be in this episode with me to commemorate the 40th G.I. Joe book episode. He's, he's chilling here with me, like a villain. Alright, well, you're gonna keep that a secret, but uh, I'm gonna confess to the fact that I've got Roadblock and Flint standing on either side of my computer. I didn't know! Cobra's a hoe! <laughs> That's terrible, Paul. It is terrible. Don't attempt it, please. <laughs> so, this is episode 2 of The Revenge of Cobra. Otherwise known as the Weather Dominator, Dominator. and it was entitled The Vines of Evil. It originally aired on September the 11th, 1984, which of course now is a notorious date in uh, world history. And incidentally, September 11th is also quite a important day this year in in South Africa because it marks the the date that the judgment. Uh, to our biggest trial in the last four years, at least, the Oscar Pistorius case. Uh, we, we're getting judgment handed down on September the 11th. So as of the date of airing of this episode, we should have some idea whether or not our uh, famous Paralympian, Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner, uh, is indeed guilty or innocent, or guilty of culpable homicide. That said... <laughs> Expanding our focus a little bit further and to the, the much larger issue of September 11th and the significance that it holds in world history, I have this to say to anyone affected by the events of 9-11 and the greatest spiral of events outwards from that, the war on terror and the various consequences mm-hmm. that that conflict had and continues to have and the crisis in Gaza, and the conflict in the Ukraine, and Libya, and every other flashpoint across the world. Today's kind of a day to to hold you in our thoughts. And with that out of the way, let's talk about G.I. Joe animated cartoons. Yay! Yeah. Hey. <laughs> 
that's something we do have a level of expertise on. We're massive consumers of G.I. Joe cartoons. Oh, yeah. Well, two of Rob, you are. So much I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then perhaps it's best to hear from the newbie first. But before we do that, here is Wikipedia's summary of episode two, The Vines of Evil. Cobra Commander has Duke and Snake Eyes fight each other in a gladiatorial combat in his arena of sport. Cobra plans to assault Washington, D.C., but Duke and Snake Eyes send a Morse code to their team. The Joes successfully defend D.C., but they destroy the weather device by splitting it into three pieces, scattering it globally. Weather patterns all over the world are in havoc. G.I. Joe and Cobra begin expeditions to recover the shattered device. Opening Don't rounds, go. if you please. What do you think, Rob? I'm going to say I, I didn't enjoy this episode as much as the first episode. The fight between Duke and Snake Eyes is probably, I suppose, the biggest highlight of the episode. But what I really enjoyed the most was um, sort of near the end of the episode when Flint and Matt and Junkie are going to the bar, and they, and you get Shipwreck's intro. Mm-hmm. I quite like that. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's, that's my my, yeah. my best. I enjoy that moment more than the Duke Snake Eyes battle, personally. And yeah, to cap that off, I'd like to say that the low point of this episode was Duke and Snake Eyes facing off. Mm. Instead of a yeah. moment of high drama, we've got some rather uninspired and rather dully choreographed combat between Mr. G.I. Joe himself and everybody's favorite silent commando. So, yeah, it was kind of lackluster. Just a few, yeah. like, parries. And having <laughs> they were having a full-on conversation, or at least as much of a conversation <laughs> as you have with Snake Eyes <laughs> while they're fighting. That. It was just a bit hokey. I it mean, was so one-sided. <laughs> hokier than usual, let's say. And it's We've just got crazy to send that... a message to Joe headquarters. Oh, use that transmitter, knock down the tower, and tap your communicator belt. I mean, I think Duke even calls it Snake Eyes' utility belt. Yeah. yeah. He's like, are you pointing to your nipple? Yes, use your nipple. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't, what I find convenient in this... What I find convenient in this situation is that Duke overhears where Cobra is attacking next while he's fighting Snake Eyes in a very large room, like across a very large room through a window. With lightsaber sounds everywhere. Going, I mean, (laughs) because... You notice Duke's sword kind of lights up like a lightsaber. Yeah, I mean, they used a lot of... I mean, they've obviously put a lot of animation, like, effort into the scene. I mean, there's a lot of flashing lights and that sort of weird, you know, sort of glowy effect on everything. And that travelator, like, the prisoners get shot through a chute coming out of a snake mouth, and then they go on this glowing travelator into this game board. A lot of effort, but it really is such a a minor footnote in this episode, really. They they don't do much with it. Yeah, except, you know, it's like, oh, suddenly Duke overhears what they're talking about in the control room. It just sounds weird, because there's even a moment where Destro kind of, like, he's talking to them, and he's like, in, in the middle of where he's talking, they, they switch shots, and you can actually almost hear the sort of his speech sounds speaker-like, like it's being said over a speaker. He's like, 
I've programmed. And then it switches. My neurocontrollers to force you to fight to the finish. Like, <laughs> there's no ways he could have overheard them. Mm. It's, well, unless they just left the PA system on. Oh, by accident. Is, yeah, you know, that sounds so like typical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm starting to realize that I kind of have to leave behind logic when I watch these episodes, or I will get exceptionally frustrated, like, all the time. I think uh, the trick is to adopt the logic of the series. Uh, yeah, it's happenstance. That's how it happens. That's how they get the information. Suddenly, they're evacuating the whole of Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I'm starting to get into that mindset. Well, let's unpack it piece by piece. Of course, we open yeah. this episode after the cliffhanger of Flint being engulfed by these killer creeper vines Yes. In the the canyon of chaos? The pit of like chaos. That. The pit of chaos. They're flying over the pit of chaos. The Cobra Very George. Dramatic. Uh, wow. Okay. What a perfect place to set an ambush. <laughs> anyway, so we have a more meaty segment with Roadblock. And I must say, <laughs> I never really enjoyed him much in the comic book for whatever reason. I just thought there's nothing particularly attractive to me about this character. But hearing the voice acting in the cartoon gives mm. him a dimension that makes him instantly likable. <laughs> Let go of my legs, sucker. It's got that I love that. E, uh, resonance, sure. <laughs> but it's just like he looks like the kind of guy you want as your number one pal, you know, your big friend. To kind of watch yeah. your back. Like, Roadblock is that guy. And I never I never really got that in the pages of a comic mm. book. I guess it's because I should have been inserting that voice in my mind. But I didn't. Because True. I don't have a background with the cartoon. A lot of people with Roadblock kind of get stuck on the... You know how he rhymes and all that. I mean, it's a great hook for gags and all that. But a lot of people get stuck there. They're like, It's almost like they dislike him for being like that. I kind of love that. It's... It's very animated series, regardless of it being G.I. Joe. All cartoons have to have that kind of, you know, that, that kind of cool character. And I think like Roadblock... from Trolls. Yeah, like Jazz. Yeah. Here's what I have to say about that. I mean, surely the G.I. Joes as individuals, as people, as human beings, aren't immune to pop culture. And Roadblock is a pretty hip dude. I imagine he... He listens to Grandmaster Flash and the Sugar Hill Gang and Run DMC. You know, he's probably got like a few, well, in the later 80s, some NWA CDs lying around. Yeah. No, I, I can imagine that. I can imagine he gets down to that. Two live crew. <laughs> <laughs> I still love that line. And but that's no one of the vanilla highlights. Ice. <laughs> yeah, no vanilla ice. No go ninjas, go. I still have to say, I love that line. That. Get on my legs, sucker. <laughs> I love that. From from this episode. Oh, yeah, from the episode. That's what he says when he when he gets when he sort of comes up to Flint and he's like trying to cut their way through. Let go of my legs, sucker. <laughs> and it's, it's delivered with that Mr. T sort of panache. <laughs> yeah. It. Aside from that, I get what you're saying with Roadblock as well, Steve. And in the comic book, he seems kind of very background in a lot of ways. And in the cartoon, he's very much in the foreground. He's got quite a big voice in the cartoon. You know, he's very much a part of what makes the G.I. Joe cartoon. As far as characters go, he's fairly heroic. If you watch him in, in, in later episodes as well, and this one too, he's very self-sacrificing. 
You know, he's very much a hero. Which you I, get I, that from the comic book appearances as well. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, he's, he's just, the guy who will function as a rear guard division in, you know, practically unwinnable odds. Mm. And he's he, he comes out unscathed or blinded or whatever. But the, the point is, he puts himself in harm's way to save the team. Mm. He's just got this sort of self-assured glow that he's yeah. going to be just fine. He's like a force of, of enormous positivity, both in stature and figuratively speaking. And for me, throughout this episode at least, I feel that one thing that Mud says about Roadblock, and uh, this is of course happening in the scene as they're escaping the creeper vines in their uh, makeshift helicopter, Flint kind of laments the fact that, oh, you know, Roadblock, you know, he sacrificed himself, and Mud's like, that dude's totally tough. You don't have to worry about him. And then mm. that statement resonates throughout the entire episode because they don't ever come back for Roadblock. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's like this one-man army sneaking and fighting. And and I'm going to mention uh, cougars <laughs> or mountain lions. Uh, <laughs> Good point, actually. They don't ever stage a rescue Roadblock operation. Yeah. You can hack it. He's okay. He's Roadblock. I feel sorry for anybody who runs into him. Kind We've of got thing. bigger fish to fry. Besides, he's... Probably been engulfed by the creeper vines and <laughs> tickets. No, they didn't think that. They were like, no, he can handle not. himself. Yeah, sure. What do you guys think about that daring escape? I'd like to say this much about Flint's improvised helicopter. <laughs> it seems to be a precursor to the battlecopter mm. in some ways. And by that, I mean the Cobra battlecopter with the the tail, but um, it's anybody's guess as to which way is the right way up. But the cobra's tail has the diagonal bar at the bottom. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Uh, I, and the, the rear uh, vertical stabilizer or, or fin uh, has the sort of the narrow end at the bottom and the, the wide end at the top. That's a design that you see in that makeshift chopper. Also... The fact that it has, you know, assembly required, that's kind of a gag with the battlecopters. A yeah. gag that Larry Harmer actually makes when he yeah. has the, the drug elimination force construct them. Uh, yeah, if you skip the instructions, it goes a lot quicker. Yeah, exactly. Good memory. And also, of course, it shares the battlecopters' lack of safety. But, I mean, <laughs> that's a precedent that uh, Cobra set way back when they introduced the fangs. So, it's not even worth mentioning. But yeah, it did seem to have that resonance. What do you guys think of the escape plan? I love it. I just, uh, I, and I suppose it's one of the things that makes the cartoon quite magical. The fact that they could build some makeshift helicopter just in the middle of a crisis situation really shows you how awesome G.I. Joe is. <laughs> and I like it because it has some form of uh, problem-solving element to it. So it's, uh, once again, it's not the, the Joe's using some kind of superpower it's just that Joe's using some kind of super problem-solving ability, which I think is great for like a kid watching it. It's definitely great for me. I I hate it when all of a sudden characters can like in some crisis situation they can jump much higher, or or something happens like water splashes or something, you know, in the, at the right moment. I really like seeing some kind of problem-solving go through, and that's something that I I enjoy in other cartoon or other animated series like Batman. I like the the Batman animated series, which has a lot of that as well. All so the Joes I'm kind are of kind of MacGyver stand-ins, basically. 
pretty much, all, yeah. All cross-trained I mean, in so many different disciplines, they can just kind of make makeshift helicopters out of jet parts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Without um, uh, access to sort of a machine shop or any heavy tools. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's, I mean, the, it, that's the other joke, yeah. It shows a lot of ingenuity, but I mean, completely, I don't know, I found it very unbelievable. But Naturally. That's completely it's, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. And then Roblox took out every last bit of fuel he could get out of the airplane, he says. But the engines are well, like blasting. He's like, I took out everything I could. Oh, hopefully there'll be fumes left enough to keep those things at base so we can get this thing started. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's uh, fun. At least they got yeah. out. Yeah, you know, they had to fly it out. They didn't try and climb out. It's like, we're under pressure. What do we do? We don't try and climb out. No, we're going to build a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Actually, That's yeah. The GI Joe. I mean, Roadblock yeah. manages to climb out just fine. He climbs out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, later in the episode. Uh, and he hangs oh. on long enough until, like, the clouds part and, like, everything becomes bone dry and the plants die. <laughs> As was established in the last episode, you know, like, when, when it runs out of water, they die. <laughs> Would the soil not soak up water? Oh, God, I need to turn off this part of my brain. Uh, yes, yep, sorry. Because, yeah. Check your adulthood <laughs> in at the door. The one regret I have about that scene, before we move over to other stuff, is... I would have loved it if they did some kind of playset um, for G.I. Joe that kind of related a bit more to the cartoons. I, I would have loved to have seen a playset that had that kind of thing going for it, you know, where you could build the, the little escape helicopter or, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, some of those scenarios. And there are some scenarios in this very episode that would, which would be great to replicate if they kind of did the a Revenge of Cobra action playset or something. It would be very interesting. Mm. I'd, Love to see what would come out of that, you know, as, as a supplement to the usual G.I. Joe stock of toys. Obviously, it was not going to happen because of how many toys are actually out at the time of this um, episode's airing. But it would be cool. And it was nice to see that in a strange way, the 25th anniversary guys uh, at Hasbro for the 25th anniversary box sets and for other things try to make little nods to the animated series in the form of, once again, the Weather Dominator. And the Creeper Vines itself. I mean, there's Creeper Vines that comes with that particular box set. And mm. Roadblock in the box set is displayed as being tangled in them, which is quite cool. They specifically released that Roadblock with those bright orange pants. Uh, and it sits on Mishy's night table there. I really need to put that Roadblock somewhere safe. <laughs> but it would have been cool to see more of that. And there's a great little toy that they released on 25th anniversary... And I am particularly surprised at Hasbro for not taking advantage of this back in good old 1985 or whatever. Oh, yeah? Uh, What's that? uh, That would be Flint, dressed as a Cobra Trooper. See, the 25th anniversary made a nice nod to that by releasing Flint in a Cobra Trooper's outfit, which is an homage Mm. to this episode. And I think he also does it in the comic, but I could be mistaken here, Steve. So this is where you could... Uh, save me from that one, but I don't think it was Flint specifically. It was a bunch of 1986 Joes uh, and Stalker, like oh, right. Leatherneck and Lowlights. There was the rescuing Snake Eyes, who incidentally was masquerading as Flint. So they're rescuing Snake mm-hmm. Eyes from a pterodrome, and long story short, the Joes often dress up as Cobra troops. Uh, but this specific appearance, as you say, was immortalized in a 25th anniversary style figure, but it didn't do very well. 
And I'll tell you no, what. No, it didn't. It's a custom that anyone could have made. It's what yeah. they call a lazy boy custom. Just take right. your flint's head, head off it. and pop it on a Cobra <laughs> Trooper. Which is so, cool for me because I can reenact that scene by popping Mutt's head onto a cool Cobra Trooper body. And I can have Flint and Mutt sneak yeah, around. Yeah, but why would you go to the length of actually purchasing a single-carded figure in order to do that? I don't know. But the, uh, I suppose and, and the figure has point. its merits, but I don't see them. No, no, no. I fully agree with what you're saying. And that's why I'm surprised that Hasbro didn't do it in 1985 as some kind of mail-away or some kind of competition prize or something. Because that would be really cool then. Because back then, people weren't unscrewing their jaws and changing their heads around. I think kids would have loved that. It would have been like, new Cobra Infiltration Flint. You know, Mm. (laughs) and much. It would have been an interesting variant. But more important than that is actually why that uh, that whole thing is significant. Because you've got them flying out now, this, this cabin, in their makeshift helicopter, which starts falling apart. And they hope to hell that nobody sees them. And who spots them? No less than two Cobra Troopers see them fly over the ridge. I love the little decoy that they do to actually take out the Cobra Troopers because they haven't got any guns. At least there's no suggestion that they have guns at this point or whatever. So they have to be quite covert. And uh, using old Mutt with uh, Flint's boots. Well, Mutt and Flint sneak up. Oh, sorry, Junkyard, sorry. <laughs> Mutt's the guy, Junkyard's the dog. Junkyard's the dog. Yeah, no, sorry, I actually... I don't, don't know if those are Flint's boots. They look like, I don't know, some skanky, like, 49er, gold rush, I don't know, country bumpkin's boots. That just happened to die on that side of the ridge. Exactly. <laughs> they found them and they're like, hey, this could be good for a plan. <laughs> It's a nice bit of humor, and I do like the fact that, you know, you've got the conflict happening basically in sound effects. You just have, mm. <laughs> and cut to Flint and Mutt driving a Cobra Stinger Jeep. Oh, good of those Cobras to uh, <laughs> lend us their vehicle. <laughs> and leave, leave the, the keys in the effect. Yeah. 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 What do you guys think of the Cobra, I don't know, the uh, town that they that they arrive at. Let's see if we can find a way to get back to base. I bet the cuisine is fabulous. I love it so much because it's so hokey. <laughs> Well, it gives you an insight into how Sunbow and Marvel conceived this Cobra organization. Yeah. You've just got these, like, Cobra towns in the middle of, like, desert nowhere. Mm. Where you've got blue shirts mixed in with dudes that just look like thugs, mixed in with wanderers like Shipwreck. Yeah. And these guys go around wanting to, to steal Flint and Mutt's rifles. Yeah. It's like, do, okay, are, are you looking to gain membership to Cobra? Because I don't think stealing Cobra Troopers' firearms is going to endear you to uh, the higher-uppers. 
Or maybe that's how Cobra works. It's like in order to dog, gain dog. membership, you've got to kill an officer and take his gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's possible. Nice bunch of weapons you got. Just what we've been looking for. Mutt. Visitors. Just hand over your weapons and nobody gets hurt. Could you hear what the man said? Would you please speak up? It's noisy in here. I said give us your weapons! One thing about that whole little town setup is it's very reminiscent of an anime that was uh, being aired at the same time in Japan and uh, other Asian territories, most notably Hong Kong. It's an anime called Fist of the North Star. And yeah, you guys might know it or you might be familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Fist of the North Star is set in a post-apocalyptic world after nuclear war. So it's kind of the original creators kind of love letter to something like Mad Max and Kung Fu and superpowers. So So Paul, you do realize you're describing probably about 30% of all anime. At that time specifically, Fist of the North Star was a standout. It was the first of its kind. Japanimation Uh, is... Very fixated on post-apocalyptic worlds, but okay. I'll take the point. First of the North Star is definitely a a major one. And I find that that town is designed a lot like the sort of settlements in First of the North Star, and that the thugs themselves are very generic First of the North Star thugs. Like, they had the punk hairstyles, and they got Mm. that First of the North Star look. And I really dig that, actually, because I don't know if the listeners know this, and I'm, I don't know if you guys know this, but that cartoon wasn't animated in America. It was animated in, in Japan. A lot of the key stuff was done in America, and then a lot of the full-in animation and a lot of um, some of the backgrounds and stuff were actually done in Japan. And this was quite common because they were doing the, the Transformers cartoon as well like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if those characters were completely out of Sunbo's hands, and that was actually the animation company down there in in japan who sort of did it and there's quite a bit of evidence aside from it being a first of the north star replication there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that it wasn't really done by sunbo themselves because that whole setup is very western uh like old western and I mean, gunslingers and a dude yeah. on a player piano because there's no ways that blue shirt playing the piano is playing the piano yeah i mean they kind of animated him laughably just like hitting a single note and he's totally into it. Nobody kills that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know if he, I don't know if he's totally into it. He looks kind of kind of shit scared at one point. <laughs> it's like, oh, keep my head down. Just keep playing this note. <laughs> but like all this carnage is going on around him. And he's like playing the song. And once again, I think that's a very Japanese influence. Because I think that's, that's like a, a very American stereotype, you know, in a lot of ways. Like, oh, it would be like th- this kind of brawl would happen in this Old West kind of thing. And they would be playing that kind of music. Cobra themselves are a bunch of Wild West thugs that love player piano music in their CD bars. <laughs> mm-hmm. Random. Sort of Old West confused genre moment. Now, it's in this bar that we get introduced to Shipwreck. Uh-huh. And I made an interesting realization when I watched it just now that you've got this Cobra Town where you've got thugs dressed in whatever and then you've got guys rocking the Cobra Blue. Does anyone else think it's odd that Shipwreck is wearing blue? Yeah. I mean, we always took it to mean he's in the Navy. But his introduction to us is not like hanging out at some shipyard. 
He's in the middle of a desert in Cobraland. Yeah. Wearing blue. Yeah. I think it's a smart way of handling that. I think it would have been so cliche if we had found shipwreck at a shipyard. <laughs> I thought that would have been appropriate, I think. But I do like that he, we see him, we get introduced to him in the middle of a desert. I actually didn't think, okay, the Cobra guys are dressed in blue. That's, I did not think, wow, maybe that means shipwreck is a Cobra guy. <laughs> Look, it's a bit of a stretch, but it occurs to me that, you know, that's kind of how the scene is set. you got these very mm-hmm. obvious signifiers of like, these dudes are Cobras, these dudes are just thugs, and the interplay between them. But, you know, in an almost Han Solo-esque introduction, mm-hmm. Shipwreck becomes their ticket out. I was mm-hmm. t- totally expecting them to say, uh, my fee is 5000 all in advance. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I drew the same conclusion. I also felt that it was very Han Solo. You uh, don't live around here, do you? Don't be so nervous. I'm not with Cobra. Then who are you with? I'm with myself and anybody who can pay my price. The name's Shipwreck. Why would that interest us? Because you're not exactly number one on Cobra's sweetheart parade. Now, you want to pay my fee and get out of here? Or hang around and pray for urban renewal? We never actually find out what his fee was. I mean, presumably, the Joes paid it. They must have, yeah. Because With what I mean, money sure. they found. <laughs> or maybe it was, you know, we'll pay you when we get to Alderaan. Ah. Uh, <laughs> doesn't seem like the type of guy who would agree to that, though. No, but his, there's a shifting of the goalposts the whole time. At first, he comes on really strong, like, I'll get you guys out of here. If you can meet my price. But then he wants in on the team. So he plays the Han Solo card, but then gets swept up into the Rebel Alliance a little bit too eagerly. Mm. (laughs) Maybe he just really likes dogs. I mean, you know, Junkyard approves of him. And that's what clinches it. It's like, Hmm. you might be wearing blue and you're in Cobra Land. But if a dog licks you, you're right by me. You're a good guy. <laughs> and speaking of dogs licking and, and, and dog-like actions, how's that like really terrifying mongrel of hate going off the foot? Yeah, dude. Those are some bad dudes. Even that dog is a demon. Yeah, that dog's an asshole too. <laughs> and, like, and then old mud comes and like scares them off. And that sound effect, you're <gasps> It's so funny. <laughs> Any opinions on Doc being the go-to science guy? Yeah, that always catches me on the left because yeah. even though I've watched that uh, miniseries a few times, it always surprises me that Doc is the dude that just invents shit. You would always expect somebody else to, but Doc and everybody like, Doc, you're a genius. <laughs> yeah, some you know? sort of science dude because, I mean, like, well, Flint and them were escaping from the desert and Roadblock is trying to escape in the pit back at GRJ HQ Doc now comes up with this entire plan he's like hey I invented these mirrors says the medical doctor and chaplain's assistant <laughs> so who would be the more appropriate inventor guy my money would be on mainframe but I don't think we would expect to see mainframe I think uh, until 86 if yep, I'm not mistaken. he's two years off so, oh, how about yeah, you Rob oh, want to take a stab at it 
I don't know who it would have to be, but it would have to be like one of the other Joes who who isn't Doc. I don't know, like Flash or maybe Grand Breaker. Possibly, yeah. yeah, maybe Grand Slam. Let me put it to you this way. I think Doc in this episode is a young boy who loved Star Trek and decided when he becomes a doctor, he's not going to be like Bones. Because when somebody goes, I need you to do this, he doesn't want to turn around and go, I'm not a laser technician. I'm a doctor. <laughs> you know. So in this case, he's like, I am a laser technician and a doctor. <laughs> you know? Or a reflective mirror. I don't know, whatever the hell that mirror array is called. Reflecting panel of death. I don't know. Well, <laughs> Very good, likely... Paul. Reflecting panel of death. <laughs> <laughs> most likely Flash, then. I mean, I mean, he's the laser trooper of the time. And his secondary specialty is electronics. Like, Flash should have been the guy to invent this thing. But it's like, hey, Doc, what do you... Uh, we don't need you to patch us up because we don't ever die or get badly <laughs> injured. We need you to do something. You're a doctor of, not medicine, but of science. Yes. International man of science. <laughs> uh, so then they test it out. Which, I mean, I, I kind of like that little scene. Where they yeah, kind of Blowtorch gets to do something. Yeah, yeah. and he's like, hey. very well go around incinerating bad guys in a cartoon. <laughs> no. Yeah, you gotta so the flamethrower guy kind hurt. of doesn't get much to do. Yeah. Hey, are you sure you want to be back there, Doc? Don't worry, I've got my asbestos underwear on. <laughs> uh, Grand Slam is an electronics engineer, and he's a really smart dude. But the original yeah. 13 green guys really get shafted, I'm afraid, in the mm. cartoon series. Yeah, they don't get fleshed out much at out, all. As you pointed out in the last episode, what they introduced for the cartoon series, a character named what? Sparks? He's the tech dude or whatever? Yeah, who totally uh, is redundant because they do have Breaker. And laughably, they show Sparks in the same scene as Breaker in episode two. Like oh, when they, they receive the message from yeah. Snake Eyes. Well, yeah, uh, exactly. And so Breaker's in the same frame, yeah. just kind of like overseeing yeah. what Sparks is doing. Why have this extra character at all? His function mm. is kind of a mystery to me, really. I agree. I think it was just like, hey, those guys look like they should man a communications desk. So let's just put them there to add to the scene and we can take them off the kiddies shopping list. Once again, that's the toy commercial part of it coming through, I think. Uh, <laughs> quite heavily and uh, then of course they they leave the base and once again we got optimus prime driving along <laughs> yeah doc's at the helm yeah no. oh love that scene love that scene hey. so much i mean one red truck and then like a bazillion uh what are they called uh APCs. well yeah there's the apcs that come out and then, and then were the I th- dragonflies I think it's a, Yo, well, geez, that thing, like, spews forth dragonflies. I mean, there's just dragonflies everywhere. And then even the shot that leads out is still dragonflies. You know, there's, yeah. there's tons of dragonflies. And I, and I was wondering, who's piloting these damn things? There's not enough Joes, you know, to go into these vehicles. Well, you know? in this episode, we see green shirts. That's right. Yes. Unnamed personnel. Yeah, and when they, they eventually get... get to Washington, yeah, you see a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was interesting. It's, and also, once again, surprised that Hasbro never took the opportunity to make a green shirt figure, uh, like a fill-in guy. 
I mean, they pretty much were just relying on the competition to make inferior army toys and then, you know, getting us to fill our ranks with those dudes. You know, they didn't capitalize on that, and I'm surprised that they didn't. And yeah. I, was, I feel it's a serious missed opportunity. Also, and, and this is something that segues into the previous episode, actually, with Zartan. There seems to be a confusion with Zartan's design that they seem to fix, but you'll see in later episodes they don't fix. Look very carefully at his hood. There are times when his hood is a hood, and then there are times when his hood is actually hair. And you can tell this, it's very it's very brief, but you'll see in sequences where he's running, uh, you'll see that there's little pieces, like almost like a strand or two of hair, that actually forms part of the silhouette of the hood. And if you look, you'll see there's no hood, actual, it's actually hair. It's actually ah. drawn as hair. Yeah, but it's very quick. You, you don't notice it unless you're looking for it. Oh, the, yuck. The, the, yeah. I, 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 I have a sneaking suspicion you're right, Paul, but I really hope you're wrong. Because yeah. that's just gross. It is gross. <laughs> no, no, I fully agree. Firstly, I, I was putting in quite a critical analysis of the episode, so that's why I noticed it, okay? Because I was watching it um, and, and I was scrutinizing it as, as I was going through for this uh, review. Oddly enough, uh, while I was on Google earlier today, I was just looking up some stuff and I wanted to just make sure I wasn't going crazy. And there's actually a whole slew of people out there Joe fans, who actually felt that that was Zartan's hair. They never actually realized it was a hood. They, they actually legitimately thought it was hair. Mm. That's yeah. possibly because of the cartoon series. Kind it's of very like possible. Absolutely. That misconception two. is purely stemming from the cartoon series, I think. But yeah, I've been aware of it for some time. I've just always hoped that in the eyes of the creators of the show, there was no debate at all. Mm. It shocks me to think that some of the animators were also guilty of making the error. I think, once again, this is a outsourced animation situation where it was outsourced to animation studios in Japan who were doing the stuff. And it was a... Someone didn't know any better. Yeah, a bit of English. Yeah, they're, and they're just happened given and, what they have to do. They're told, we need you to animate a sequence doing this. We need this guy to run from here to here put these craft in there, they just do it. I mean, they don't necessarily need to know the context of who each character is yeah, exactly. to animate something. This is what he looks like, here's all his angles. Animate. Yeah, exactly. Oh, here's the model sheet, but just now for, you know, they're in such a hurry to get it done, and then maybe there's a crazy deadline, and there's some English and lost in translation happening, and, you know, all of a sudden, Zartan has hair for one or two scenes. It does get corrected, but it's just yeah. interesting. It's one of those things that flip-flops in in this miniseries, specifically with Zartan, because, you know, he's new as well. Mm. So, just something to note. It's just I thought I'd bring that in. Something I wanted to mention from the last episode, but wanted to bring it in here, because it seems like it's mostly corrected in this episode. I have... Uh, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a niggly thing, but something that, that occurred to me after watching Mass Device and then watching this. There was a whole plot point in Mass Device about Cobra being able to direct the energy of the mass device by using a homing beacon. Now, I assume they'd be able to target and fire on Washington, D.C. with the weather dominator without any kind of uh, guidance equipment. I suppose, you know, Washington, D.C. is a pretty big point on a map. You'd be able to, to calibrate your weapon to fire and hit that area and therefore affect the weather over it quite, quite easily. But then G.I. Joe are able to fire Cobra's own weapon back at them using those reflectors, but it's never explained yes. how they're able to pinpoint Cobra's location. 
and it's very quick. I mean, like they all they hand the energy all off to Doc, and then there's like a, he, the cannon does a slight movement and he fires it off, and, and it's zaps like, Destro, and zaps like Destro. perfect shot. Yeah, and, and and that gives rise to perhaps my least favorite point of this episode, and I acknowledge it's probably a necessary one, and to audiences watching it in 1984 with the mass device being a whole year ago, it probably didn't seem like too much of a retread. It was sort of just allowing the action to continue into more exciting locations. But splitting the weather dominator into three components and having them come down in three different parts of the world is Mm. just such a crib of the previous miniseries. Really? Yeah, well... To catch you up, Rob, Cobra needs three distinct elements to power their mass device, and they're located in three very specific geographical locations, the ones under the sea, the ones in the frozen north, the the others, I think, in a desert, in a jungle, I don't know. So it becomes a similar pattern of Mm. G.I. Joe and Cobra racing against one another to obtain these things before the other. Because the fate of the world hangs in the balance. I mean, it's it's a tried and true plot piece, mm-hmm. but you know, it's watching too them similar between the two series. The sadly, ma- yes, watching them the back to back, you're like, wow, am I watching the same? It's easy to have the two <laughs> miniseries blur into one at that point. It is a bit of a not a failure, but I think it's I think something didn't happen with the original miniseries, and I feel that maybe they felt that oh. Either something good happened with the Mass Device miniseries, and their viewership was really good, and they th- figured they can uh, lightning can strike twice. You know, if they do a lot of the same things, or you know, recreate some of the same tropes, so to speak. Either was that, or the original miniseries did not do that well, and they felt that okay, maybe they had to use a different character roster, different vehicles, and all that stuff, and maybe then people would, you know, sort of wake up to it. It is an interesting one. And and it is sad because I I agree with Steve. Sometimes, at least when I first got this box set and I watched those back to back as well, I also felt like, whoa, hold on, deja vu. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's there in a big way. In fact, I still have the same issue now when I go on eBay and I'm looking for the mass device parts because I want to build the mass device. Mm. You know, the little mass device that they did from the box sets. Yeah. And sometimes I get myself sort of swept up in. Is this a mass device part or a weather dominator part? And then I got to double check and go, okay, they only did three pieces of the weather dominator, but released the console for the mass device with the weather dominator. So, you know, there's a bit of, you know, it happens. <laughs> wow. Mm. Confusing. So confusing. What I found confusing in this episode, and I've watched it like two or three times now, and maybe I'm just not hearing it properly. But while Joe's doing all their things, trying to sort of get together, Back at Cobra HQ, there's a conversation between Destro and Cobra Commander where it kind of feels like they're flip-flopping in their viewpoints. The scene kind of starts with Destro going something like, we shouldn't use the full power of the device. Mm. And then Cobra Commander's like, like, no, but... Let's just use lightning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, use lightning, but Cobra Commander's like, we must use it. And then Destro says, but uh, I don't think lightning will be enough. But he just said, don't use he full power. Want to use full power. Mm. And then Cobra Commander's like, okay, fine. Throw in a tornado as well. 
It's like they're haggling over the price of a used car, and they're they're trading roles. It's like the salesman becomes the buyer, vice versa. It's like that's in that one scene, and and then like it's it's like what? I don't I don't get it. I mean, I've replayed that scene. It's that's almost literally what they say. It's like don't use full power, but we must. Uh, I think lightning will be too much. Okay, fine. Also do a tornado. (laughs) That's brilliant. It's like, okay. And also, like, later in the episode when Doc's plan all comes together and they fire off the the reconstituted energy, Destro, he he disagrees. He's like, okay, we've used the tornado. And then Kamrakwana says, use the lightning. And Destro's like, no, we we should totally show him because there could be dire consequences. It's almost like he's, he's anticipating the fact that Giorgio will be able to destroy the cannon in some way. Mm. That's always them trying to show that Destro is smarter than the commander, um, yeah. at least in the animated series. And just to come back to an earlier thing with Cobra Commander, at least, is when they're in that booth watching Snake Eyes and Duke do their Ray Harryhausen you know, impression of uh, <laughs> Clash of the Titans there, one of them kind of like says something about the location, and then Zartan's like, I'm pretty sure they sent off a message, and Cobra Commander's like, you know, it's kind of, you, you have that, like, one split second where he's kind of like, fuck, he's right, and he turns around, oh, I want them to know where we're going to strike, yes, <laughs> yes, I want them, that's my plan, <laughs> with these, these big eyes, like, I, this, this is what I wanted, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm he's always kind of, right, <laughs> you know, he's, he's such a tool, <laughs> but... Yeah, and then they send that energy back, and then it splits that whole thing off to these. And, and these are not just like remote locations. This is and this is this is complete cartoon logic coming through. But the one is this isolated island of no return. Yes, okay. and that's what it's called. Yeah, it's like you're gonna get all kinds of fucked up on that island. Is what I'm saying. And okay, then the, you go the there. palace of doom. Yeah, dude, it's. It's insane. I I love the locations though, and I love what comes later there. But it's just I love how they use like they just it's not like oh a forest somewhere in the ocean whatever because then they would really be cribbing on the mass device. You know these things have learned, like landed in some pretty geographically specific locations. And you know? they survived the falls. I mean that thing went out of the atmosphere, broke mm. apart, and those pieces came back through the atmosphere. And crashed in those three places. Yep. I mean, it's it's overs. It, it should be done. Yep. You know, episode two, the end. <laughs> GI Joe, it's like, oh, we messed up the weather, shit. And this is GI Joe's fault now. Yeah. Whatever happens after this, it's, it's Doc's fault. fault. Yes. He's like, ah. Oh, along with your plan, Doc. <laughs> exactly. He should have stayed in the church. The <laughs> <laughs> chaplain's assistant. <laughs> so any uh, closing thoughts before we close out on episode two I got two things quick Shoot. Uh, it's really amazing how and, and this is to be assumed the way that they got the laser accelerator generator whatever from G.I. Joe in the first episode suggests to me that the other two parts of the weather dominator that have split up are also stolen so how much of that thing did Destro actually make Okay, because from what I can tell, it's the seat. Okay, with the cobra. <laughs> with the... Well, he he came up with the idea that he figured out that if you put these three things together, you can affect the weather. 
I mean, yep. Y- y- Let's not yeah, overlook exactly how much uh, acumen it takes to figure out that these specific components from other completely unrelated pieces of hardware, yeah. you put them together in one specific way, you can control the weather. Yes. I mean, that in itself is exceptionally smart. He may not have designed any of the stuff himself, but he realized that, that if, you, if you get these pieces, you can make something amazing. Okay, and then, well, of course... That's a good. Yeah. That's actually a good answer. Nice, Rob. Nice. Team. Yeah. Awesome. I like that. No, it's that works not. <laughs> Teamwork <laughs> makes the dream work. No, friends, it's just cartoon logic. Yeah. Cartoon logic of the 1980s. And uh, another thing, how cool is that whole scene where they actually jump onto the desert sailboat with shipwreck? And they're sort of speeding off, and it's it's actually pretty cool. Like the whole, you know, shipwreck's actually in quite a dominant role. Later on, he'll become quite a quite a goof. But here he's like quite badass. He's flint and mutter with them. And there's this particular shot in there that I like quite a bit when the dust storm comes and hits him. Mm, takes him at out. the end of the episode. At the end of that um, sandstorm section. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's at the off. end of the episode. Yeah, that's the yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's I love the POV there. It's really cool. It's very cool. He kind of like flips into the sand, and then the the episode ends with his hand kind of like ah. Uh, Can yeah. sand actually do that? I mean, it seems like they're they're really taking the metaphor of shipwreck being a sailor in like a sort of dune sea on a boat. Uh, they've taken the metaphor really far and actually made the the sand behave like water. I mean, we've totally got this man overboard scenario and Mutt is in danger of drowning. You know, I thought in a sandstorm, sure, you want to cover your eyes and mouth because it just gets everywhere. But as far as actually being, like, drowned by it, does that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, how else is Shipwreck going to show off his play feature of, you know, tying in up... In the next rope. episode. Yeah. Yeah, ooh, we, yeah. we can't discuss that now. Yeah, That's I haven't tomorrow's even episode. <laughs> ooh. Spoilers. <laughs> what will happen tomorrow in G.I. Joe, The Revenge of Cobra? But I so, do know what we need to do now, gents. We need to rate this episode. Star ratings. Out of five. Going around Ooh. the horn. Paul, what do you say? I'm actually going to go with a half mark. I'm going to go three and a half. Ah. Uh, there's a few really cool things that I, I like a lot. For example, the introduction of Shipwreck and how he's introduced definitely cements him as one of the coolest characters in, in the G.I. Joe cartoon, at least for me. And I really I really enjoy that moment. I love, as a toy commercial, I love that we get to see Shipwreck as a new character, pretty much. There was a lot of promise of, you know, having, you know, dune-based sea boats and, and uh, you know, makeshift copters, but, you know, they never formulated. And uh, Optimus Prime. And Optimus Prime. So, as as a toy commercial, it wasn't as strong as the first episode. Let's be honest. Uh, the first episode definitely gave you a lot more, you know, toy for your buck. Yeah. In terms of drama and plot, we've spoken a lot about how it's it's quite hackneyed, and that you know it makes sense in in its wider cartoon logic. So that that's kind of what pulls the reviewer down a little bit for me. Uh, that and the it's a combination of that and the toy commercial not being that strong. In fact, actually, let me rephrase that. I give it three. It's not three and a half. It's three mostly because I like Shipwreck, but it loses a whole point because the drama is not 
quite the same as the first episode and the chosen vehicles and the chosen scenery, the stuff that, you know, we watch so that we can play with our toys in front of the TV screen is not there. It's not there. It's not as strong as the first episode. So I'm hoping the third episode gives me some more to drool over. I'm going to climb in and say that the gladiatorial combat between Duke and Snake Eyes was a low point. It uh, was a bit lackluster for me and kind of just a token fight sequence. It's like it's not going to serve any plot point unless unless one of these characters gets gets taken out or injured by the other. I mean, that, that mm. could be interesting. You've got Joes actually hurting one another. But really, it just was a, a means to an end for, for Duke to overhear information and Snake Eyes to transmit that information outwards, which led to another kind of weak element of the episode where you've got Doc coming up with a, a MacGuffin and essentially the climax of the episode being G.I. Joe fighting lightning. <laughs> it's like we're going to protect the capital from this lightning storm by using these weird mirror things which and is only useful against hill. lightning it's yeah. only useful against lightning it's like oh it's too windy should these things shatter including the thing that the mirror is on oh we've got Animation. giant hailstones <laughs> size of fists so I mean, it didn't have a set piece like we had in the first episode Mm. And it didn't so even a have a sort of a secondary action sequence like we had in the first episode. So mm. it didn't have a great deal going for it. Love Shipwreck's introduction. I think that's a bit of a no-brainer. And mm. I love Cobra Town. Like yeah. Flint and Mutt cruising through this Cobra land. It, it's, it's a light that I seldom see Cobra being shown in. That you can actually have these Cobra-controlled outposts where... It's just off-duty personnel hanging out uh, and playing a player piano (laughs) (laughs) and, like, getting involved in fisticuffs with, you know, random Random people. (laughs) Well, random thugs with demon dogs. So that was the strength of the episode, but not enough to make it a a, a standout good episode. So I'm going to give it a two and a half. So that's wow. a, a 50% approval from from Steve. What say you, Rob? Well, I'm going to stick with what I did with the first episode. I'm giving this one three stars as well. Hmm. Because even though th- there's a lot of hokey stuff, like I'm slowly getting into the way that the cartoon universe kind of works. And the cool thing I liked about this episode is that suddenly the stakes are a lot higher. I mean, hmm. it's not just that Cobra has control of this weapon. It's now that this weapon is out of control. Mm. And oh, that yes. now that now like we have they have to do so much more to be able to stop this threat. And and it's not just like, oh Cobra is using this thing. I mean it, the first episode was a cool setup. Like, ah, there's this amazing weapon we have. And I was wondering how they were going to make that last over five episodes. And I suppose it's it's a bit gimmicky that the thing breaks apart. But you had to have something that would keep the, the story going. Because this felt like Two episodes, you could you, you could wrap this up. Yajo <laughs> goes and finds where the Cobra base is, and then, yeah, let's destroy them. Because, I mean, as Paul pointed out, they sent a message. Now they can find out where we are. Joes could have just then have figured out where they are and go to the base, capture them, and, you know, and destroy the weather dominator. 
So I like that the stakes got a lot higher. And yeah, Shipwreck's introduction was very cool. And I felt that the cliffhanger in this episode, I liked it more. It felt more dangerous. I mean, it was more natural. Okay, yeah, like he's drowning in sand. We don't know how realistic that is, but it felt more natural to me than Vines. <laughs> but it's vines. You know, still a character being engulfed by yeah, uh, some natural yeah, yeah but it, it still felt it feel, to me it feels more dangerous the sort of the sandstorm and it's like how how do they escape from this I'm very curious to see how they do Watch well tune in three. this time tomorrow for episode 3 of Revenge of Cobra entitled Palace of Doom